Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that it revives our soul, that it gives light to our eyes, that it brings us great joy. By your spirit, would you do that work with us this evening, Father? We always need your help to understand your word. Father, please help us tonight. Amen. I'm not very good at making things. I try, and I'm much better than I used to be, although, to be fair, the bar started very low, but I'm not great. Even building flat-pack furniture, I'm not quite sure that it's going to hold what it's meant to after I'm done with it. My greatest ever DIY achievement was when Sarah showed me a shelf that she'd found on Pinterest. That's her husband's worst nightmare. She said, I'd quite like two of these. (laughs) My my response was, well, if you wanted shelves like that, you should have married someone else. But I went to B&Q, and I worked for a couple of days. I sawed and sanded and painted and fixed and bracketed and hung and procrastinated. (laughs) And they're all right. They're fine. But, But every time I look at them, I think to myself, How on earth are they still up? (laughs) I'm never quite sure that my furniture will perform. In Genesis chapter 10 and 11, we're going to see how humanity performs. Will they hold or will they crumble? Because if you remember last week, we saw that God renewed the world after the flood. And remember what God said in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1? God said to Noah and his sons, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. God's recreation command was reminiscent of his original creation command back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when he said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Just like Adam... Noah and his family were commanded by God to be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. How would the human race perform in this recreation? Well, chapter 10 shows us, and it shows us a pretty good picture. It shows us the fulfillment of the recreation command. Verse 1 reminds us, that because all of humanity was destroyed in the flood except Noah, Noah is the common ancestor of all people on earth. The verse starts with that phrase again, this is the account of. We've seen that before, haven't we? It's, it's the author of Genesis. It's his way of indicating that we're starting a new section in the book and that what we're reading is true history. Chapter 10 split into three sections, one for each of the sons of Noah, and it shows us that people were fruitful. They clearly increased in number and that the earth was filled. In in verses 2 to 5, we see the sons of Japheth. We're told of three generations from Japheth to Javan to Javan's descendants, and there are 14 names listed in all. These include the Medes, that's Madai. You might have heard of the Medes if you've seen the film 300, set in the time of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's the Medes. And historians and archaeologists have identified that Japheth's descendants also spread out to places in Crete, Cyprus, and Rhodes. 
That shouldn't be surprising, should it? Because they're described as maritime people, island people. If you've ever been on a Mediterranean beach holiday, chances are that you're sitting where a Japhethite once sat. Japheth's descendants are the nations that we hear the least of in the Bible. Geographically, they're the furthest away from Israel. We then see in verses 6 to 20, the sons of Ham. We're told of four generations from Ham to Cush to Ra'amar and to his descendants. And there are 30 names listed here in all. These include a whole load of names that you may well have heard of, not least of which is Egypt, one of the greatest civilizations of the ancient world. Cush is probably in Ethiopia, not our Cush. And Put is modern-day Libya. Also included here are the Canaanites. The sons of Ham are Israel's closest neighbors and the people who had the greatest political and cultural impact on them. (coughs) Please excuse my cough this evening. Finally, we come to the sons of Shem in verses 21 to 31. Here we're told of six generations, from Shem to Alphaxad to Shelah to Eber to Joktan to his descendants. And there are 26 names listed in all. We actually know very little about many of these nations. Joktan's descendants probably lived in South Arabia. We don't have much more knowledge than that. The total number of people, places, and nations listed in in this chapter is 70. In the Bible, that's a number that symbolizes completeness. That's not to say that this is a table of every nation that existed at the time, but it is to say that it's a comprehensive geographical, sociological, political layout of what the world was like as the Canaanites stood on the edge of the promised land. Humanity has fulfilled God's recreation command of chapter 9, verse 1. They've performed much better than any of my shelves. They've been fruitful. They've increased in number from from one man, Noah, to, to over 70 nations across the whole earth. They've, they've, they've filled the earth. We can't accurately pinpoint the exact location of every single one of these nations, but we do know that, that they've expanded north beyond Greece, south all the way down to Ethiopia, east across to Iran, and west, perhaps even as far as the western coast of Spain. Everything looks good. Or does it? You see, Genesis 10 is full of some clues that all might not quite be as it seems. Last week in Genesis 9, immediately after God rescued Noah and his family, we see that they fall into disarray and sin. Although this is a recreation, it's definitely not a new creation. Things are still wrong. Humanity is still sinful. And then we come to this table itself and some of the names that pop up. If, if you're in any way familiar with the Bible, then I'm pretty sure that some of these names gave you the heebie-jeebies. Because Genesis 10 basically contains the names of most of the baddies in the Old Testament. All of the nations that are involved in fighting against and warring with and corrupting Israel, they're all right here. And they're all actually in that section about the sons of Ham. Do you notice that? But this shouldn't surprise us either, though, because we've already had a clue about Ham. 
Last week, we saw that Ham was the son who treated his father Noah shamefully. Ham's son, Canaan, is the person who Noah cursed. Noah declares this, the bad line. Ham's the black sheep of the family, but not not in a fun-loving way like, you know, weird Uncle Brian. This is in a very real way. His first son, Cush, gives birth to Nimrod. What are the names of the places that Nimrod founded? Look at verse 10. Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, Kalna, and Shinar. And as if that wasn't enough, he then went to the land and founded Assyria. Babylon and Assyria, eventually the two nations that bring the Israelites to their knees and take them into exile. Assyria in particular is one of history's cruelest kingdoms to ever exist. And Nimrod himself, how does he found these places? Does he look like he's obediently fulfilling Genesis 9, chapter 1? Not at all. He's a warrior. He fights. And and the only other person that we've seen so far in Genesis who builds cities was back in Genesis 4. It was Cain. (laughs) Not the kind of person that you want to emulate. And then... That's only Ham's first son. We come to Egypt. We all know about the Egyptians enslaving Israel. And we get a nod at the end of verse 13 to the fact that out of that family come the Philistines. The great enemies of Israel when King Saul was king. And all of that is even before we come to the Canaanites. You read through Numbers and Joshua and Judges And those nations in verse 15 and 16 and 17 or 18 are the ones that crop up time and time again. Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, and on and on and on. Each of them evil, each totally against God's people. The nations that corrupt and pollute and hinder Israel throughout their history. And and then our final little clue comes in verse 25. Because we see Peleg. We found him, didn't we? He's our man from earlier. And there's something weird going on with Peleg. Because it says, two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg. Because in his time, the earth was divided. What's that about? That's all we get. But it sounds ominous. So we come to the end of chapter 10, verse 32. And we read, these are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent, within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. And as readers, we're meant to be in two minds. On the one hand, we're meant to see that God's recreation command has been fulfilled. So that's good news, right? But on the other hand, We've had hint after hint, clue after clue, and on top of them, some really obvious, big, screaming sirens saying, this isn't quite right. So what's going on? There's been a fulfillment of God's recreation command, but how? Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. That seems strange. We've just read Genesis chapter 10. 
I'm not a mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that 11 comes after 10. (laughs) And back in chapter 10, we saw three times really clearly that everyone had their own language. Look at verse 5 of chapter 10, and verse 20 of chapter 10, and verse 31 of chapter 10. There were many languages. And here at the beginning of chapter 11, we're told that there was one language. Chapter 11 is a flashback. A flashback to some time during chapter 10. It's actually a flashback to the time of Peleg. The time when the earth was divided. We're going to see that in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9. This is some of the highest quality storytelling that has ever been written. It uses literary devices that are so timeless, we still use them today. And in Genesis chapter 11, the author shows that while the fulfillment of the recreation command comes, it comes through God's judgment on those who oppose him. Let me read Genesis chapter 11, verse 2. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. In Genesis, moving east is always bad. You don't want to be going east. (laughs) Apologies to anyone who's from the east of the country. Moving east is moving beyond Eden. It's moving away from God. Adam and Eve, they were banished to the east. Cain, he went to the east. And now these people here are voluntarily venturing east, away from God. And they come to Shinar, who built in Shinar? Genesis 10, 10, our friend Nimrod. Not a good sign. Let me read verse 3 and verse 4. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. There's so much going on here. But the people bake bricks. They come together, united, and say, let's build a city and let's build a great, whacking, big tower. Now, that's not in and of itself a bad thing. (laughs) Cities, towers, they're not evil. They're morally neutral. (laughs) But these people have three reasons for building this tower and this city, and they're all sinful reasons. They want to build a city and tower, firstly, that reaches to the heavens. Secondly, so that we may make a name for ourselves. And thirdly, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the earth. Firstly, the people want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, of course, there's one sense, obviously, in which They just want to build a really, really big structure. A skyscraper, the first skyscraper. But I think there's something more going on here. The Lord's response later in the passage makes it clear that this is a huge act of rebellion. This is the third big rebellion so far in Genesis, actually. Back in Genesis 3, do you remember? Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. And back in Genesis 6, just before the flood, 
There were hints that humans were no longer satisfied with being human, but, but maybe in some sense wanted to become like God again. We saw that with the sons of God and the Nephilim. And here, in a final escalation of utter rebellion, we see that humanity want to in some way reach heaven. It's as if they want to invade the very realm of God and take him on and depose him from his throne and sit on it themselves. Secondly, they want to make a name for themselves. That's the reason they give, isn't it? They want to be known. They want to shine. They want to go down in history as the greatest architects and builders and structural engineers and the greatest people the world has ever seen. And finally, we see that they're building this city and tower in direct disobedience to God's command. If they don't achieve their goal, they're afraid that they will be scattered over the whole earth, which is exactly what God has commanded them to do. They might be fruitful, they might be increasing in number, but they don't want to fill the earth. They don't follow God's command of Genesis 9-1. They want to stick together, a close, tight little unit. They want to take on God. They arrogantly and proudly want to build a monument for themselves, and they disobey God's command. Three sinful reasons for building this city and this tower. But here's the turning point of our story. The very center of this passage is found in verse 5. But the Lord came down. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. It's ironic, isn't it? That though the people themselves wanted to build this huge structure they think will threaten heaven, the Lord can't even see it from where he is. He needs to come down in order to get a glimpse. In their eyes, it's magnificent. It's going to make them go down in history forever. In God's eyes, it's so puny, he couldn't even see it. And in verse 6, the Lord says, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. The Lord seems to genuinely suggest that if the people succeed in this, there will be no end to what they can do. Their evil deeds will just escalate and increase and swamp them and be without end. So he judges them. He mimics their language. See how the people said, come, let us make. Come, let us build. And the Lord says, come, let us confuse. They can't communicate with each other anymore. They literally can't understand the words that are coming out of their friends' mouths. The text here doesn't give us any detail of how this happened, nor of the events that take place once it does, but we can just imagine the confusion and the chaos. You can't build a city, you can't build a tower if you can't communicate. On programs like Grand Designs, you know the program with the great Kevin MacLeod, the very best episodes are the ones where people build abroad. I say the very best episodes, what I mean is the very most entertaining episodes. They're the very worst builds because it's an absolute nightmare. Some poor couple 
stand there with their builder and say, we want a 5,000 square foot steel framed oak clad structure. And eight years later, they're still living in a caravan at the bottom of the garden (laughs) because he didn't understand what they were saying. The Lord confuses their language. They can't understand each other anymore. And in verse eight, they're scattered and they're stopped. Scattered from this place across the whole earth and stopped from building their city and their tower. We read in verse 9, that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This verse, Genesis 11 verse 9, shows us what the purpose of the whole passage is. It's to give an explanation for the place name, Babel, and an explanation for the table of nations in Genesis 10. You see, Babel is the Hebrew word for Babylon. In the Babylonian language, their name meant the gate of the gods. Sounds impressive, doesn't it? That's also the mythical origin story that they told of their city and their nation, the place where their gods came to earth. And this great giant of the ancient world, Babel, Babylon, the gate of the gods. In Hebrew, the word means mixed up, confused, chaotic, messy. Our English word, Babel, means, here's a dictionary definition, a continuous, low, or confused sound, especially the sound of several people talking. Now, our English word, doesn't come from the Hebrew, but the meaning was probably affected by this story. So even for us, by calling Babel, Babel, people in Scotland pronounce it Babel, you may pronounce it Babel, but I'm going for Babel because then we get the joke. Babel, it's not the gate of the gods. It's a stupid place, a foolish place, a place where God said no. And then how does it explain Genesis 10? Well, people clearly didn't follow God's recreation command, did they? Instead, they attempted to actively avoid it. But God judged them, which ironically leads to the fulfillment of the command anyway. They get scattered across the whole earth. Their mission was that they wanted to build a city and a tower that reached the heavens, make a name for themselves so that they weren't scattered. Fail, 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 fail. Mission unaccomplished. An unfinished city and tower that doesn't reach anywhere near the heavens. They're not renowned for their structural work, but rather they're infamous as a futile, folly-filled people from a place called Babel. And the Lord's judgment scatters them. The very thing that they didn't want happens. And the very thing that God commanded is fulfilled. Genesis 10, chapter 1. Genesis 10, verse 1 to chapter 11, verse 9. These chapters tell us two things. Here's the first. This passage shows us or tells us Don't oppose God 
or you will face divine judgment. It shows us here, doesn't it, the very heart of sinful human nature. People acting in arrogant rebellion against God, wanting to take him on, wanted to become God. People wanting to make a name for themselves. People disobeying God's commands. And things haven't really changed very much since then, have they? We had a remembrance service here this morning, as we've already heard. Often remembering wars that were started by people who lived the way that these people from Babel did. People who rebelled against God, who wanted to make a name for themselves, who disobeyed his commands. But we need to be careful, don't we, that this isn't just a description of the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Bin Ladens of this world. We all share that same sinful heart. We all rebel against God. We all want to take him on, however unrealistic it is. We all attempt to invade heaven from our point of view. From his point of view, shake our little fist at him. We all want to take his throne. We all want to make a name for ourselves. We all disobey his commands. And this passage is just the culmination of everything that we've seen in Genesis 1 to 11, where we see that if we oppose God, we will face divine judgment. And that divine judgment is death and an eternity in hell. But there's a second thing that these chapters tell us. They tell us that you have to be in the elect line to receive blessing. To see this, we need to come back to Peleg. (laughs) Because in his time, the earth was divided. We've seen that in Genesis 11, verse 1 to 9. Language was was divided, and the people were scattered scattered at Babel. But it was also divided in another way. You, You see, back in Genesis 9, verse 26, that's what we saw last week, just after Noah cursed Cain, he also, Canaan, he also blessed Shem. Shem was to be the blessed son. He, he was the youngest of Noah's sons, but he gets priority. He's named first. Shem's family are the Lord's line. Shem's family are the elect line. Shem's family are the blessed line. So, so among Shem's elect line, in Genesis 10, 25, we get to Peleg. But we don't think anything of it in Genesis chapter 10, do we? But if you flick forward to chapter 11, verse 10, this is the account of Shem's family line. And look down to verse 16. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of who? Peleg. He pops up again. And that line leads down to verse 26 which says, after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abraham. Abraham, the father of God's people, the first Israelite. I I wish I could preach for another half an hour just on Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. I'm going to do it in 30 seconds. Because in that first promise that God made to Abraham, he promises Abraham everything that the builders of Babel wanted. (laughs) 
He tells Abraham that he will make him into a great nation, that he will make his name great, that he will bless him and not curse or judge him. If you oppose God, you will face divine judgment. But if you're in the elect line, you will receive blessing. We need to be in that elect line. Not being in that elect line exposes you to the same judgment that was faced by those people in Babel. But being in the elect line gives you access to great blessing. We need to be a son of Shem. We need to be a son of Abraham. But for us, being in that elect line doesn't mean being a physical son of Shem or Abraham, but a spiritual descendant. Behind me on the screen is going to come up Galatians chapter 3. Understand then, Galatians, uh, Paul says to the Galatians, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham, are in the elect line. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. I wish I had an, an extra half an hour on top of the extra half an hour that I already had to explain this, but it's absolutely amazing. If, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings as we've looked at Romans, if you've been with us in life groups on Wednesday nights looking at God's big picture, then some of this should be coming together for you. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who are faith are in this elect line and receive great blessing. By having faith just as Abraham did, by having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, by having faith in him, you will receive great blessing. And just to see there in verse 8, all nations will be blessed through you. That goes back to Genesis 10. That table of nations, people from all tribes and tongues and nations, no matter where they're from, can come and be part of this elect line and be blessed in it. But those who don't will, like those at Babel, be divinely judged. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful. Amen. In Genesis 10 and 11, we see that the fulfillment of the recreation command comes through God's judgment on those who oppose him. So, let me challenge you. Don't oppose God, or you will face divine judgment. But be in the elect line to receive great blessing. And if tonight you are in the elect line of Shem, Abraham, through faith in Christ, then rejoice greatly at the blessing that you receive. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May it be that for us here this evening. May your spirit continue to work in us. 
Father, may we not oppose you. For those tonight who are here, who are living in opposition to you, for those who, in one sense, have deposed you from the throne of their life, Father, would you speak to them, have mercy on them, and show them that they can be in this elect line through faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And may those of us who are in that elect line be so grateful, Father, that though we were once part of that great table of nations, for many of us, we don't come from Abraham physically, but we thank you that spiritually you have grafted us in. May we praise your name for that this evening. In your name, amen.